A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi there, history friends. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. This is episode 62, so if you haven't listened to any of your episodes, make sure you do, otherwise you'll be absolutely clueless as to what's going on. In fact, even if you've listened to the other ones, you may also still be clueless as to what's going on. Especially because today this episode looks at a period of history which is pretty much unknown, but as we'll learn, it has seriously important implications for not just the future of Bavaria or Germany, but also the world. That itself is a pretty good hook and a pretty good reason why you should listen in. But if you weren't aware, this podcast is also ripe for listening into because it is supported by fans of history just like you. If you go on to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails right now, you'll see that there's 300 other people just like you who started out life loving history, who started out life loving history podcasts and took that love, took that relationship to the next level. And as a result, can now chow down on all sorts of special goods, such as ad-free episodes of this podcast with scripts to match, so you can read along and listen along at the same time. 
In addition, you can also get an hour of extra content every month and chow down on the Suez Crisis, as well as other special projects that we've released in the past, such as 1956 Part 1, which looked at the de-Stalinization process and the Hungarian Revolution, and the Jan Sobieski biography series. If you're looking for content that delves into different eras of history other than just 1919, if maybe you've gotten your fill of Versailles and want a break and you want to come back later on, then maybe this could be for you. Take a bite out of a completely different era of history, which goes quite well in tandem with the Korean War that we looked at before. So if you've never even looked at the Korean War, maybe you just jumped in and you're asking yourself exactly how much I've done so far, then yeah, we've done the Korean War too. And if you want to check that out, by all means do. Don't worry, there's only 48 episodes of that, so it'll take you no time at all. In all seriousness though, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate it. And even if you do none of that Patreon-related stuff, even if you only tell someone about this show, tell one person a week, that will be super wonderful. And really appreciate it. It's because of your support that I'm able to keep on doing this, and this podcast is my job because so many of you took that love to the next level. Without any further ado then, let's take this show to the next level and actually start the flaming thing. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 62. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 62 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So last time we concluded our analysis of April by noting the moment when the Germans arrived at long last at Versailles and focusing on that eventful day of the 30th of April. After having been the subject of the Allied negotiations for four months, it was perhaps high time that the Germans actually arrived to conclude the treaty. As we know though, the treaty was far from finished. It still contained many outstanding issues, with certain committees still yet to return their verdicts, certain experts still yet to finish their own investigations, and really, this treaty as a whole had yet to be stapled together into a coherent document. This stapling would not take place, incredibly enough, until the very last moment, and it was so last minute that not one single member of the Big Three, let alone the Allied delegations generally, had actually read the treaty in its entirety. This was problematic for the Allies. They had invited the Germans to Paris, but by the time they arrived, the treaty was still not finished. The Germans, for their part, were anxious to begin, but not only because they wished to get the whole process over with, confirming their worst fears or giving them cause for optimism. The German delegation, led by Ulrich von brockdorf ranzau was eager to begin because they knew that they represented a fractured country, and not until the treaty was finalised and accepted could the new German Republic finally move on. With this in mind, we take a look at one fracture in particular, the state of Bavaria, which throughout April 1919 was rocked by Bolshevik revolution. Not until the first few days of May 1919 was the situation reversed and Bavaria saved, and the Bavarians who were left behind were profoundly shaped by the whole ordeal. 
Munich was destined to become the de facto birthplace of Nazism. But before this could occur, the city had to grapple first with its considerable Bolshevik problem. In this episode, we're going to investigate this forgotten chapter of the Peace Conference. The fact was, while Berlin was preserved from the Spartacists by timely Freikorps intervention, and while Weimar represented the new beginning for a democratic German people, Munich, Germany's second city, was not so fortunate, and it played host instead to a tumultuous series of events which could only be contained through further violence. The traumas of Germany and diplomacy had yet to be confirmed in the first few days of May, but that trauma of revolution, of fearful Bolshevism, of ceaseless disruption and despair, was in full swing in Bavaria. Until truly patriotic Germans put that revolution down, Germany itself would never be safe. The mission, however, proved easier said than done, and so without any further ado, I'll now take you to 1919 Bavaria. Ludwig III was the last of his kind. He was the last king of Bavaria, the last in a long line of Wittelsbach monarchs, stretching back to the 17th century, when Bavaria was elevated in importance in the Holy Roman Empire, thanks to the exploits of its rich and wily duke, Maximilian II. Before then, the Wittelsbach family line boasted an impressive lineage which had spat out Holy Roman emperors, engaged in high-level political activism, and just generally had the run of the place for more than five centuries. The Wittelsbach dynasty was one of the world's oldest institutions, tracing its ancestry to the 11th century, with roots in the royal families of Greece, Sweden and the Palatinate, but it proved no more resilient to the wave of revolution sweeping across Europe in late 1918 than any other family, dynasty or power. Ludwig III abdicated his throne officially on the 12th of November, issuing the Anif Declaration, which released his servants, officials and citizens from their oath of allegiance to him. The people's state of Bavaria had already been established five days earlier. In the course of a week then, a millennium's worth of rule had come to an end. Of course, there was more to King Ludwig III's abdication than a decision made the day after the armistice. The crisis had been mounting in Bavaria for some time, and in the second half of the war, Pacifist and socialist demonstrations increased in their frequency and intensity. In the final year of the war, the situation became still worse. Ludwig was 70 years old in 1918. He was the prototype of a good Bavarian king, a hardline Catholic, constitutional conservative, and, since 1871, loyal to a fault for the Prussian apparatus which presided over the dominance of the German state. This latter attribute, more than any other, began to count against the white-bearded monarch as the fortunes of war began to turn decidedly against Bavaria and Germany generally, and the possibility for an advantageous peace diminished with each failed counter-offensive. A relic of old Bavaria, Ludwig was completely ill-equipped for the moment, but he at least had within him enough compassion to recognise the futility of clinging to power to the end. There was little time to mourn the departed king, though, as Bavarians found that their landlocked country was very much at the mercy of conditions imposed upon Germany as a whole. In the past, we've seen that Georges Clemenceau tried on several occasions to support independence movements within states like Bavaria by the strategic delivery of food. The reason why there was believed to be an opportunity in that theatre, ripe for exploitation, was because the Allied blockade continued and positively decimated the fledgling German Republic. 
Germans were suffering from chronic undernourishment as a result of the blockade, and after several months, the question of continuing the blockade became a seriously contentious one within the upper echelons of the British government. Throughout March and April, the flow of intelligence from Germany increased as the British became more active in gathering intelligence from that country. The purpose had originally been to assess the dangers which Bolshevism posed, but this mission was changed after a while, and the designated officers concentrated on an investigation of conditions in Berlin, and east to Stettin, Danzig, Königsberg, Memel and Courland. This was likely done in conjunction with their original mission, that being to assess how the continuation of the blockade might induce Germans to welcome Bolshevism as a solution to their woes. The officers' reports described fearful conditions, and one of these officers, a Major Bertie, was especially notable. Bertie wrote that, The mayor of Stettin, who has eight children, looked a mere skeleton. I was afterwards told that his hatred for England for carrying on the blockade after the armistice knew no bounds. The blistering opinions of dozens of employers and ordinary citizens against the blockade were reported, with countless communications revealing the officers' clear sympathy for their viewpoints. For example, summarising attitudes towards the British, the Bertie report sent to London went as far as using capital letters at one point in the report for the sake of emphasis. Don't worry, we're not going to shout in the following extract to actually capture that point, but bear in mind that as I read this, it's actually written in capital letters, just to drive the point home. Bertie wrote, But what absolutely beats them, the Germans, is the continuance of the blockade, because they cannot realise that there are still people in England who have not yet grasped the fact that Germany has been beaten in the war, and so badly beaten that she may require help to defend herself against internal and external enemies. Bertie also reported on the condition of the German army, describing it as far more serious than we imagine. In the present catastrophe, Bertie wrote, Germany was wholly reliant on volunteer corps. The limited mobilisation of volunteers against Poland in March, as a response to the terminal dispute over Silesia, did not seem to Bertie to represent a reversion to militarism in Germany. Instead, Bertie viewed it as a natural reaction to the tumultuous realities of life in a country which had its food supplies severed and its armed forces neutered. In interviews with socialist ministers in Berlin, Bertie was assured that there was not a man living in Germany today who did not consider the pre-war foreign policy of Germany as hopelessly wrong. This report by Bertie is relevant for us because the situation was mirrored in Bavaria. In Bavaria as well, British officers had been sent to gauge the situation and what they found must have confirmed all which London had feared since they were literally present in the country on the 6th of April 1919 when a Bolshevik Republic of Bavaria was proclaimed. Lieutenant G.H. Bafus, among others, was sent to Bavaria on the 31st of March, and he and his colleagues explored the major Bavarian cities of Würzburg, Nuremberg and Munich. After being caught up in the throes of a positive convulsion in Bavarian society, Bafus sent an interim report from Berlin to London on the 9th of April, having returned to Berlin to take stock. Bafus, along with his colleagues, had been in northern Bavaria when the Council's Republic, the most serious left-wing threat to the moderate Berlin government yet to appear in Germany, was proclaimed in Munich on the 6th of April. 
Bayfus described the political battle between the moderate Bavarian government, which promised food from the West, and the Workers' Council government in Munich, which promised food from Russia and Hungary, because those were the other Bolshevik states. Bayfus was of the opinion that the Bavarian people as a whole were in the depths of despair, because for five months since they had received those great promises of food from the West, which were contained in the armistice itself, the food situation in the country had not improved. The Germans have read so much and heard so much of the promised food supplies that they no longer believe in them, wrote Bayfus. Prompt arrival of supplies might avert tragedy, but Bayfus agreed with the many Bavarians who told him that it was too late for the Allies to solve the situation. If Bavaria was to be saved, it would be saved by Bavarians and Germans, in other words, the Freikorps. In explaining these events, Bavis wrote vividly of the nervous depression and moral collapse of the ordinary people after years of undernourishment. There was evidently no doubt in Bavis's mind that the blockade and drip feeding of the Bavarians, literally, had led to a chronic breakdown in their society. Out of desperation, Bavis noted, Bavarians had swung towards the extreme left, which in a country that was well-developed, conservative and traditionally monarchist, said a great deal about precisely how desperate the situation was in the country. The situation on the ground in Bavaria since King Ludwig's abdication in November 1918 had not helped ease its citizens into a period of calm either. Much like in Weimar, the citizens of post-war Bavaria established a radical new socialist form of government. But, as had been the case in Berlin, the more extreme leftist or Bolshevik elements were never too far away. The People's State of Bavaria, which itself sounds a little bit Bolshevik and a little bit suggestive, was founded on the 8th of November 1918 with the Jewish journalist and Berlin native Kurt Eisner as its head. Eisner was a walking cliché in many respects. He had frequented the intellectual discussions which had dominated the coffee houses of pre-war Europe, and in 1905 he had moved to Bavaria to write for the Munich Post. As he moved, his views moved as well, far further to the left. In January 1917, Kurt Eisner founded the Independent Social Democratic Party of Bavaria, the more radical wing of the Social Democratic Party which Friedrich Ebert spoke for. Due to the federal nature of the German Empire, Bavaria had been permitted to effectively rule its own affairs before and during the war. This, of course, most plainly demonstrated in the fact that Bavarians retained their monarchy, even though, ostensibly, they were within the German Empire and the former kings of Prussia were now the emperors of Germany. Yet this did not mean that Bavaria was allowed to go nuts. Bavaria was required to take part in the elections to the Constitutional Assembly in January 1919, just like the other German states. Curiously, Kurt Eisner was a radical reformer, but he also believed emphatically in democracy, hence the democratic aspect of his socialist views. This belief stung him deeply, though, when he learned that his independent socialist party had been utterly crushed in the elections. It was perhaps not all that surprising that this should have been the outcome. Bavaria, after all, had hardly been a hotbed of socialism before the war. Ludwig, in many respects, had represented the inclinations of the Bavarian people, mostly Catholic, right-of-centre politically, and conservative. There was certainly a desire to reform Bavaria and improve the standing of its citizens, but it would have been difficult to assert that Bavarians universally saw socialism as the solution to their woes. 
A far more straightforward solution would have been the ending of the Allied blockade, which would have enabled food to flow into the country and for the crisis and starvation to end. That Kurt Eisner proved unable to find a solution to this chronic problem, in that he could not persuade the British to end their blockade, also counted against him when it came time for elections. The divisions present under the surface in Bavaria exploded as Kurt Eisner, the Democrat that he was, walked across town to submit his resignation to the Bavarian Parliament. While en route on the 21st of February 1919, he was shot in the back by a nationalist. Only a few days earlier, you will recall, on the 19th of February, Clemenceau had been similarly the victim of an assassination attempt, but unlike the French Premier, Kurt Eisner did not survive. In the previous weeks, he had given pan-Germans more than enough reasons to loathe him, and he had been loudly critical of Prussia and of the Prussian role in initiating the war. This was unusual in a sense because Eisner was from Berlin, but it was also ill-timed, because in the aftermath of the war, few could have countenanced the breakaway of Bavaria from the German Empire, except for a small subset of the Bavarian country, which we will meet later on in this series. Kurt Eisner had been vocal in his belief that Prussia had initiated the war, and in an international socialist conference in Switzerland, he made these views public. To German nationalists, it must have seemed as though Eisner was more interested in socialism than he was in Germany, and this could not be allowed to stand. With Eisner's death at the hands of a German nationalist, there emerged a new crisis in Bavaria. Those on the hard left moved to retaliate against those that had struck Eisner down, and a leftist extremist stormed the Bavarian parliament, shooting into the room, killing two and wounding another. Amidst the chaos, Bavaria's parliament did appoint a new leader. The former school teacher and leader of the majority Social Democratic Party, Johann Hoffmann, but those on the far left refused to accept Hoffmann's new government and instead took to the streets. Buoyed by events taking place in Hungary, where Béla Kuhn had established a shaky but undoubtedly revolutionary Bolshevik Council Republic, independent socialists in Augsburg and in Munich began to demand the same. Hoffmann's government adopted the same tactics as Friedrich Eberts had done. It evacuated the unsafe and unstable capital of Munich and withdrew to a sleepy city. In this case, Bamberg, Bavaria's answer to Weimar, to escape the danger. Unlike what happened in Germany proper though, these Bavarian Spartacists didn't simply revolt and get crushed, they actually set up a Bolshevik state, the Bavarian Soviet Republic, on the 6th of April. So, with that recap, what you should know is that by the 6th of April, there were two Bavarias. And, if you were confused, don't worry, because there was a whole lot of confusion going around as to what exactly the situation was in Bavaria. Johann Hoffmann, unlike the Hungarian government which had so suddenly collapsed in the face of Béla Kuhn's revolt, refused to give in. He loudly criticised the upstart Soviet Republic as illegitimate, inspired by Russian influences and far removed from what Bavarians actually wanted, and there was some truth to these claims. Bavaria was, after all, traditionally conservative and monarchist, Catholic and agrarian, and had only a minority sympathy for a republic of the workers. As the historian Robert Gervarth explains, Their revolutionary agenda was as ambitious as it was unrealistic. It could only have been imposed in a far more dislocated and broken state than Bavaria. Banks and large industrial firms were to be nationalised. Free money would be given to abolish capitalism. 
Universities would be run by the students. The press was to be subjected to censorship by the Office of Enlightenment and Public Instruction. The Bavarian Soviet thus followed a similar set of instructions, the veritable guidebook on how to establish a Soviet state in a traditional, non-Soviet region. The best bet was to compel coercion by force, but delivering on some of the promises made by the Bolshevik leadership would also have helped. The main plan had been to get food supplies from the other Bolshevik states, Hungary above all, and to establish the new regime in Munich as a friend of the people. There were great expectations, but also grim resignation surrounding the moment of the Bolshevik ascendancy. Evidently, those that lived through the period and experienced the short-lived spectacle were unaware just how shaky the foundations of the new state were. Much like in Hungary, the Bolshevik regime was not on firm ground. There was, of course, no need to advertise that fact. We are deeply convinced that the time is not far off when the whole of Germany will be a Soviet republic, proclaimed the head of the newly established common turn in Moscow, adding, The Communist International is aware that you in Germany are now fighting at the most responsible posts where the immediate fate of the proletarian revolution throughout Europe will be decided. The future Nobel laureate Thomas Mann, then living in Munich, was of the same opinion. It may be assumed that the rest of Germany will follow, he wrote in his diary on the 7th of April. There was, as of yet, no chapter in the Soviet handbook that dealt with failure, and considering the apparent pace of the collapse in Hungary, it seemed only sensible to bet that Bolshevism had arrived in Germany through the back door of Bavaria, where the French had long tried to manipulate the situation, and now they'd pay the price. Central Europe is aflame with anarchy, wrote Robert Lansing, the Secretary of State, on the 4th of April, adding that The people see no hope. The Red Armies in Russia are marching westward. Hungary is in the clutches of the revolutionaries. Berlin, Vienna and Munich are turning towards the Bolsheviks. It is time to stop fiddling while the world is on fire. The impression of impending Soviet doom wasn't helped first and foremost by the rhetoric surrounding the inevitability of Bolshevik revolution consuming the world, or the massive amount of fear that surrounded this idea that you simply could not stop the Bolsheviks from doing what they wanted, and that the longer the peace conference went on, the more likely it was that such disasters would take root. On top of all this, though, this impression of impending Soviet doom wasn't helped either by Hoffman's failed efforts to take back control. In one particularly bloody encounter between government forces and communists, it was the communists who gained the upper hand, and they used the victory to justify swinging even further to the left. And by now, it was true that Russians could be found in important leadership positions in this Bavarian Revolution, and two of these Russians, Max Levien and Eugen Levinet, established the Second Munich Soviet Republic to succeed the first, but not sufficiently radical enough Bolshevik Bavarian state. The liberated working class, proclaimed Lenin in Red Square on May Day, is celebrating its anniversary not only in Soviet Russia, but in Soviet Bavaria. And so the goose of Bavarian democracy appeared cooked. And yet, Hoffman refused to call it a day just yet. Established in the northern Franconian city of Bamberg, he determined that the time had come to swallow some of his pride. Previously, his policy had been not to invite help from any sources that did not recognise his government or Bavarian rights. He had, for instance, avoided inviting in the Freikorps, 
on the expectation that they would probably take matters too far, and because it looked better for the sake of legitimacy if he could put down these Bolshevik ruffians himself. But now he was ready to go back on these ideas, considering the weight of the moment. In the third week of April, Hoffman appealed to all anti-Bolshevik elements within earshot to put down this revolution, proclaiming, Bavarians, countrymen, in Munich rages a Russian terror unleashed by foreign elements. This insult to Bavaria cannot be allowed to last another day, not even another hour. All Bavarians must immediately help, regardless of party affiliation. Munich calls for your aid. Come on, step forward. Now, the Munich disgrace must be wiped out. As Hoffman predicted, this appeal effectively opened the floodgates and mobilised all those who despised Bolshevism, but who at the same time may have been somewhat wary of Hoffman's regime. Remember, with a socialist regime in power, those on the right side of the political fence may have felt apprehensive about supporting that regime and thereby legitimising it. Now though, with Hoffman's call to arms, many found that they couldn't resist. They hated Bolshevism more than they wanted to undermine Hoffman. Among those to answer the call was the former commander of the Bavarian lifeguards, Major General Franz Ritter von Epp, who was here commanding the Freikorps Oberland. A great deal was also said in dispatches about von Epp's distinguished second-in-command, the stylish, suave, 31-year-old war veteran and future commander of the SA, Ernst Röhm. With Bavarians representing some 15,000, Friedrich Ebert's government matched that number for mid-April, and this large force of organised, committed anti-Bolsheviks, a mixture of regular soldiers and Freikorps irregulars, stormed through the fledgling Bavarian Bolshevik state. In response, the rumour went, the crazed Russians atop the Bolshevik regime had opened the prisons and armed the criminals to bolster their armies. It was becoming quickly apparent that the net was closing in on this experiment. On the 30th of April, the Bolsheviks committed a grave error when they allegedly sexually assaulted and then murdered several female hostages from important Bavarian families. News of this atrocity and the inevitable exaggerations which followed added further fuel to the flames of the already fearful Inferno and lent justifications to the ideas of brutal revenge which the approaching anti-Bolshevik soldiery had in mind. Today, as I am writing these lines, wrote the German-Jewish literature professor Victor Klemperer from Munich on the 2nd of May, a veritable battle is raging. Klemperer would later become famous for his accounts of life as a Jew in Nazi Germany, but here he provided a perfect window into the death throes of the short-lived Soviet Bavarian Republic. Klemperer continued, A white squadron of planes is flying over Munich, firing and being shot at, dropping flares. Infantry fire is rattling. More and more troops march or drive or ride down Ludwig Street with mortars and artillery, and from the safety of the street corners, where it is safe and the view is good, crowds of spectators watch on, often with opera glasses in hand. Evidently, the Bolsheviks had been unable to eliminate Bavarian high society in the weeks they had been in power. By the 2nd of May, it was effectively over. The Bolsheviks had no answer for the overwhelming force which the coalition brought to bear. Over the early days of May, some 600 people lost their lives, mostly caught in the crossfire or killed in cases of mistaken identity. And yet, as Klemperer noted, there were still opportunities for some to catch a glimpse of the whole debacle, as though watching a play or a performance. 
The main ringleaders of the episode were quickly shot, and over 2,000 supporters of the regime were given harsh sentences in the weeks that followed. Bavarian courts were inundated for the next several months with more than 5,000 cases directly associated with the event. But the impact which this Bolshevik experiment in Bavaria had went deeper than merely a backlogged legal system. A city which had always prided itself on its cultured sophistication and traditionalism had been utterly shaken and blown apart by a revolution led by filthy Bolsheviks. Conflict and war came to Munich on a scale and in a manner never experienced throughout the Great War. As a reaction to the unexpected, shameful explosion of Bolshevik revolution, Bavaria, and Munich in particular, became more right-wing, more inherently suspicious of socialism, more conservative and more nationalist. It was no coincidence that in this atmosphere of profound change and threat, the citizens of Munich provided the ideal breeding ground for some of the most deplorable ideologies to spawn and grow. Munich, the site for an unexpected Bolshevik revolution in 1919, became the birthplace of Nazism within a few short years. And among the ranks of those that were tasked with taking down this Bolshevik Bavarian state was, yes, a young Ernst Strom and several other future Nazis. But among the more prominent of these was Adolf Hitler, who himself was seriously shaped by this experience and who historians believe during this whole process swung himself as far to the right as one could possibly go. The Bavarian Soviet Revolution, in other words, mostly forgotten by mainstream histories, had profound impact upon not just Germany and Bavaria, but also the world, and consequently, whether you realise it or accept it or not, all of us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 